Um, I was, uh, it was actually, I walked to church this morning, and whenever I was on the way to church, I uh, bumped into a guy who was out walking his dog, and he was so cross, he was so agitated, just sort of chatting about how start of October, today is the 1st of October, um, and he was out walking his dog, but he was really cross. I was asking him what, what, what was wrong with him, and he said, uh, it, was, it was cross because people are letting off fireworks too early. It's, like, it's only the start of October, why on earth? Are people letting off fireworks now? And I was trying to relate to him. He says, and he looked down at his dog, and he says, it scared the dog so badly that he knocked down the Christmas tree. <laughs> um, talking about sin, you're looking at me thinking, that's a sin. You're, you stand up here telling a joke every Sunday. That's the definition of sin right there. Sin, uh, as we talked about last week, it's an, old, it's an archery term, um, the Hebrews understood it as an archery term was, that was to miss the mark of perfection. We talked a wee bit about the Hebrew concept of, of perfection, and it was, uh, it was the goodness of relationships. And so what, at the very beginning, what God called very good was the relationship between God and humanity, humanity, and, humanity with each other, and humanity and creation. That was the Hebrew concept of perfection. And so to sin, sin... If that was the Hebrew concept of perfection, sin then was anything that breaks the relationships that God has called very good. And so we talked, we went to the, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and he tells us to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you. And then he says to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a talk we are so used to when it comes to talking about sin, to talk about character or to talk about morality, but sin, to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is speaking of relationships. So the antidote to sin, we suggested, that is not personal perfection, but it is radical love. And so as part of me, I said to Judith leaving the house this morning, I just feel really nervous. Just like, for whatever reason, I feel nervous talking about this. Um, whether it's the weight of it, whether it's feeling like I'm, I'm inviting you, to, to think a wee, maybe a wee bit differently than what we've been accustomed to when it comes to thinking and talking about wrath. And so just in case you don't know, we're, we're talking about the gospel. The series that we started a few weeks back is we're, we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about the good news. And the idea of sin and the, the presentation of the gospel that we have been handed to is, is, is so prevalent and it's, it should be there, of course. Um, but because it's there, we want to talk about we want to talk about sin. We want to talk about wrath, and I think it is important. And I think it's important because I think and maybe this feels like a, a bit of a, a big statement, but it feels like God's character is at stake. And that's why I want to talk about it because there's a way that we talk about God, how God looks at sin, the way God views sinners, the wrath of God. There's a way that we talk about God that I think maligns his character. I think that maligns his goodness and his true nature. And that's why I want to, that's probably one of the main reasons why I think this is important to talk about. Whenever, we, whenever we've been praying the last couple of Wednesdays, um, what, I, what, what has been weighing on me is that there are people within our families, within our communities that just distrust, just they just don't trust. 
the character of God. They don't trust that he's good. And I think in some ways of how we've presented the gospel and how we've talked about God is one of the reasons I think we're, the church is certainly partly responsible for why people tr- cannot trust in the character and the nature of God. I think it's because of how we talk about sin and how we talk about wrath. One of the most transformative things that I think has ever happened to me when it comes to reading the Bible and in my journey of faith has been the words of Jesus when he, when he over and over again said, you want to know what the Father looks like? Well, then look at me. You want to know what God is like? Then look at Jesus. And that has completely transformed how I see everything. It's almost like going right back to the beginning of the Scriptures, recognizing that if you want to see what this God is like, if you want to see what Yahweh is like, throughout the Old Testament, then it is, he is perfectly and fully revealed in Jesus. So much so that, the, that John, um, the, writer, uh, the writer of the fourth gospel, he said, no one has ever seen God. And you're like, well, how can that be the case? What are you talking about? Do you not know your Bible, John? Moses seen him, Abraham seen him, they seen him and they walked with him. They were friends of God. And he's not, and he's not saying that they didn't see him, but in, in terms of in terms of the full revelation of Jesus, all of that pales into insignificance with the full revelation of Jesus. We can trust his character. And I want us to know that. I want us to be fully confident in that. I want, I want our families and our communities to know that he is good, that we can trust his character. And I said last week that I was going to make reference to, to Jonathan Edwards and I was going to calm down a wee bit. And I have, because I want to acknowledge that even though Jonathan Edwards preached his most famous sermon, and what he's most known for is this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And even though I find it, and like, I'm standing up here preaching, somebody probably could turn around and pick up one of my sermons and say that was deplorable and horrible. But Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is easily one of the most monstrous, horrible uh, sermons that I've ever read. And so I want to, but I also want to qualify that, even though that's his most famous, that wasn't all that he preached. So that's my, that's where I've got to this week. Uh, even though this is his most famous sermon, he did preach still some good stuff. Um, but this is what he said: "The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you." and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Like, I, even reading that again, like my heart is my heart is beating like mad with like just something rising within me. And I hope that something is right. Because maybe we, don't, maybe we will have not heard that preached. But in some ways I think we've been given a lighter version of that. In so many of our gospel presentations. I don't want to even read it again. The... The idea of being threatened with an angry God so that we would accept a merciful Jesus, it might work. But I want to say the end does not justify the means. And so this worked. This, this is part of the, this 
sermon in this time was part of the Great Awakening in, in, in North America. So many responded. But if you, if you read some of the reports of why and how people responded, they responded out of fear. They responded out of blind fear because of how this God was presented to them. And, that's, and I listened to Charlotte Curran at the Tabar conference last week. And she movingly talked about the nature and the goodness of God. And said how, and talked about, like her upbringing is the same for many of us that have grown up in Northern Ireland. Um, strong, evangelical Northern Ireland. And just recognized that so many of people around her and still continue to witness that people came to Jesus out of fear. And she movingly talked about how can you have a relationship with someone that you're scared of? How can you know someone? How can you journey with someone that you that you're scared of? And the thing is that you could find Bible verses to validate some of that, some of the stuff that Jonathan Edwards and his contemporaries came out with. You'll you'll find you'll search the Bible and you'll find one or two verses that will validate that. You'll see in, in some of the people responding to it that it worked. And sometimes we get carried away with that, but I've been asking myself that question as I've looked at, yeah, it does work. And yes, there is Bible verses to, to, to validate it and to back it up, but is it true? Is it true? Is it faithful to the God revealed in Jesus? Is it faithful to the God revealed in Jesus? And I'd love that to be the whatever topic we're talking about, whatever theme, whatever conversation it is that we're having, I would love that to be your question all the time. In your devotionals, in whatever it is, is this faithful to the God that is revealed in Jesus? And so again, for many of us, I think we've, we've been, brought up, been brought up in sort of this Northern Ireland evangelical world. Maybe it's Wider than that, it's very much a Western thing. That as part of the gospel presentation, part of the good news has been that God cannot look upon sin. He cannot look upon sin. He cannot tolerate it. As you'll find, maybe find verses to validate that. You'll maybe find that, maybe that, 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 that that works in our gospel presentations. But I want to suggest to you, and, and, I, and I invite you to, to do your own thinking and your own work around this. But the only place that I could find where we, where we take this, uh, this idea from is Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk, in, in his prayer, in his, in, his, in his talking with the Lord, he says these words, You are, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So we've got that verse. We've heard that verse and we've, like, we've, we've, we've like embedded that right into the very heart of our theology, into the heart of the good news. You cannot tolerate wrong. Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. That's, was, that's what the prophet Habakkuk was saying. But if we were to read the next line, we'll see Habakkuk's complaint. We'll see Habakkuk getting upset because he is saying, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, so why do you? And I said, I mentioned that to Judith during the week. It's like, for the first time, I went to Habakkuk and I read the next line. I'm like, I'm like how many times have I done this? How many times have I, have I took a snapshot, have I took one little verse, built something around it without going on to the next bit? 
You cannot tolerate evil. Is the, what, what, that's Habakkuk's understanding of who God is. You're too pure. You cannot tolerate wrong. So why do you? That's what Habakkuk is saying to God. Why do you? I think there is, we are guilty. I am guilty. We project. Maybe this is what was going on with Habakkuk. We project onto God how we think he should act. Habakkuk is seeing the evil. He's seeing the wrong that is going on. And he has decided that God should act upon that with vengeance. God should act upon that. But, but God doesn't. And I think we can be guilty of projecting onto God how we think he should act. This is, um, I feel like there's so many places we could go this morning. Jeremiah 31. Um, Jeremiah 31 says, there's time to read some, all of the chapter, but verse 20 says, Is not Ephraim, Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. So if we were to spend some time this morning, which, which probably would be worth it in some ways, it would be fascinating to go back into this, what is going on here in 7th century Israel. It's written in the 7th century. that Ephraim is 7th century Israel. And at this stage in Israel's journey, in Israel's history, they are at their lowest moral, their lowest moral ebb. They are in their most, they're, they're in their worst spiritual condition that they've ever been. And so, if that's the case, if the case is that he is too pure, he is too holy, he cannot tolerate sin, he can't be around sin, then I think the language would be a lot different than what we have here in Jeremiah thirty-one verse twenty. 700 years before we have the full revelation of God in Jesus, we get an insight into the heart of God towards sinners. We get an insight of the Father's disposition towards sinners. His disposition towards sinners is one of unconditional love. And it's evident in Jeremiah. It's evident in so many other places. His disposition towards sinners is one of unconditional love. And so our problem is, this is not getting away from that we have serious problems. We, when we sin against the two greatest commandments that Jesus talked about, two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we sin against those two commandments, we suffer the inevitable consequences of acting against love. We run against the grain of love. We run against the grain that was, that was established and called very good at the beginning. When we sin against those two great commandments, we suffer the inevitable consequences. And we can call that the wrath of God because the Bible does. It doesn't mean that God literally loses his temper. It feels to me that the wrath of God is consequential rather than it is retributive. And though Jonathan Edwards uses such horrific language, you still hear that in some of our presentations of the gospel um, in, in the West. We hear it in, here in Northern Ireland. 
but sometimes the presentation of the gospel and, and, and the wrath of God, it feels retributive more than it does restorative. And I would love us to think differently about justice. I'd love us to think differently about wrath because that is retributive justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is not representative of the God that is fully revealed in Jesus. As we were to go, if we were to go into, and honestly, I would love, I know I say this every, every time I'm talking about, love engagement around this. I'd love it if there's something that you want to push back on. I'd love it if there's something you want to talk more around. Um, but Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, or verses 18 through to 25, talks about, um, it talks about wrath being revealed. Because since what God has made plain, um, they have trusted the creator, uh, the creation more than the creator. Um, verse 24, therefore God gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them up. That, so there's other places that we could go. There's other writings of Paul's that we could go that feels that's what, that's what the wrath of God is. God giving them over. That's what it actually talks about whenever Jesus went to the cross, that, that, that God gave him, gave him up. God did not kill Jesus. He wasn't so angry, he wasn't so wrathful that he needed appeased. He gave them up. What I, what I, as I've engaged with this this week, it feels like it's, it suggests that he is holding on. It suggests that God is holding on, but he won't force. He won't force people to follow him. He won't force people to accept his love. He won't do it, but there's a suggestion that he'll hold on for as long as he can. He'll hold on, but eventually he'll give them up. And that's what it is to suffer the consequences of going against love. Experience, that's what wrath looks like. God hands them over. And I listened, to a, I listened to a guy talking recently. I think it was almost in reference to, related to this, this idea. He was talking about a family member who was, um, who was an addict. And because they were a family, just over and over again, they, 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 kept, they kept showing mercy. They kept showing mercy and they kept showing love and they kept opening their door. And they kept being really good and they kept being really kind. And I can only go by this guy's story because I don't have experience of this. But he got to the place where he realized that his mercy was contributing to his ongoing destructive behavior. And that he needed to give him up. He needed to hand him over. It was the only way. I, it, was, it was interesting to listen to. And those that have worked with addicts and those who have had experience of that will, will know far more than I do about this. But this guy was suggesting that your mercy, your mercy can continue to enable destructive behavior. There's no consequences. And so what, what, what is God like in those moments? Is God satisfied? Is God pleased? I, I would suggest that we go to Luke chapter 19. If you believe me, if you think this is true, that God is, God is fully revealed in Jesus, then look at Luke chapter 19. And how do we know what Jesus, how do we know what God's reaction to judgment is? Well, let's look at what Jesus' reaction to judgment is. 
In, in Luke 19, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He said, if you knew, if only you knew what was coming. If only you had known on the day that what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And I, was, I found myself so moved by that this week. What is, what, is, what is the reaction of God towards judgment? Is he satisfied? Is he pleased? No, he's not. It breaks his heart. Jesus looked over the city knowing that judgment was coming because they'd walked away from love, because they'd walked away from, from, from God and from, from Jesus. They'd walked away from it. And because they'd walked away, they were going to face the inevitable consequences of walking away from love. And as Jesus looked upon and recognized and knew that what judgment was coming, he wept. The, the Hebrew of that word, the Aramaic of that word, is like it's something like it is, it is a wailing. It's a wailing that would be suggested here that Jesus wailed. Such was the depth of his breaking, the breaking of his heart at the judgment that was coming. He wept, he wailed over. Jerusalem and over judgment that was coming. Um, oh man. I've too, I feel like I have too much more to say. There's such good stuff in the chapter 18 that will hold it. But if we, if we, if we tend to think, I'll finish with this, if we think that he is too holy to look upon sin, we will tend to act the same. If we think he is too holy to look upon sin, then we will tend to do the same and we will, we will turn sinners away. Why I wanted to go to look at 18, and we will go to look at 18, is that the Pharisee was so proud and unself-aware he was so unaware of himself because, because he was so aware of the tax collector. The tax collector caught the attention of the Lord because he was beating his chest, Lord of mercy, on me a sinner. And that's, that's the place I'd love us to be at. That's the place I want to be at. I don't want to, just in a trite, easy way, say like Paul did, call himself the chief of sinners. Paul, Paul called himself the chief of sinners because he was so aware of his own sin. He was so aware of the stuff within himself that everybody else's didn't matter. And that's not how we are. We want to hear sermons on somebody else's sin. We want our, we want the what we believe section in our church websites to talk about the sins of other people. Like you don't go to a doctor, John's and GP, you don't go to a doctor about someone else's illness. How crazy is that? How crazy would it be someone turned up to the GP in Market Hill to tell them about the sickness of somebody else? But we want to hear sermons on somebody else's sin. We want to go to Dr. Jesus about somebody else's sin. And I think as maybe challenging, as tricky as that might be, that's in some ways the place I need to get to. That unlike the Pharisee, that I would be so unaware, I would be so unaware, I'd be so aware, sorry, of my own sin and my, my own stuff that I'm so unaware of everybody else's. 
My only response in the presence of the Lord would be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I want, I want that. I want that to change how I see him, but I also want it to change how I see other people. Because if he's too holy to look upon sin, then we tend to act the same. We judge the so-called sinful and we turn them away. Or we condemn them, or we condemn them on the street corners with our microphones. But God, that's, not, that's not the God revealed in Jesus, and I don't think it's the God revealed full stop, because in Genesis 3, right at the beginning, God goes looking for sinners. In the story of the prodigal son, we have him looking, have him looking and waiting, and when they come, he goes running. That's who our God is. That's his disposition towards sinners. Unconditional love. And I think that's why it's important that we talk about it. I find it really challenging this week. I find it really challenging, but there's been times where I've just got to that place where I want to be more often, just Lord of mercy and me a sinner. Fully trust your character, fully trust your goodness, who you are, and want to change how I see others. So Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me a sinner. Holy Spirit, you help us. Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're loving. Thank you that you're slow to anger. You're rich in love. You're overflowing with mercy and kindness. Thank you your disposition towards me this morning is unconditional love. Thank you as you look around this room this morning. You're not angry with any of us. So God, I pray that we would experience and engage and walk with the God that is fully revealed in Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach us. Holy Spirit, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, sign your names there in that form. And uh, even if it's just an hour of Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, that'll be enough.